Yeah, there are some talented people making that mural, and it is going to fill in all through the summer. It's out in the lobby, if you haven't noticed it yet, up on the wall, and it's just going to help us get to know this guy, David. Uh, you know, I don't know what kind of week you guys had, but I had a week where it felt like I was waiting more than usual. My week kind of felt like, uh, well, what characterized the week was a visit early in the week to the hospital. Uh, it's not unusual for a pastor to go visit someone in the hospital, but in this case, somebody at Heights was having some surgery, happily nothing life-threatening, but I was sitting early in the morning with uh, the husband waiting for the, the news, and I kept asking him questions about what he thought might happen that day and what the doctors were going to do, and it was pretty clear he was kind of at the mercy of whoever would eventually walk in the door and give him information. It was a waiting room. And he was waiting, <laughs> okay? And it was, it's not easy to be in that place. When you're in a waiting room, especially at a hospital, you're waiting for news. There's nothing you can do about anything. You truly are at the mercy of very, hopefully, gifted and talented people who are working on your loved one, but there's nothing you can do about it. And for certain people wired in certain ways, it's even more frustrating than others. If the procedure is a serious one and the waiting is combined with a sense of dread, of, 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 and hope that's not worse than you fear it might be. It gets even harder to live in the waiting room. And even when it's not in a hospital setting, let's just face it, we all hate to wait. Uh, maybe I hate waiting more than some. I'm not sure. We'll compare sometime if we get a chance. But sometimes the waiting we are forced to do is kind of mundane, but still really hard. To, to, I was shopping this week. I was at Fry's. And you know, you get the cart full and you head to the cash registers you got to pick the right aisle, right? you got to pick the right row, the right register, because if I get in this one and that guy's line goes faster, I lost, <laughs> right? Because I've had to wait longer than I wanted to. Anybody like me on that? You got Oh, I hate losing at the supermarket. So sometimes it's kind of mundane kind of waiting. Other times the waiting is really annoying, all right? I mentioned one of the reasons I waited more than normal this week is because I had computer problems on a week when I'm trying to get the message ready and some other things I was needing to prepare. And I kept getting that spinning ball of death. I hate that because I am helpless. I've got other people smarter than me working on it, but I lost an entire day. And a lot of that was spent waiting for my computer to work or waiting for someone else to make my computer work. So sometimes it's kind of really annoying. Sometimes the waiting is excruciating. Uh, we have friends who uh, were trying to adopt an orphan from Ethiopia. And they were working through a very reputable agency, and they thought all the papers were in order, and the ducks were in a row, and, and they flew to Addis Ababa, thinking they were going to take their boy and come home. And without them having any way to know it, somewhere in a government office in Addis Ababa, someone announced that there would be no more foreign adoptions after they got there. They already had their boy, but they couldn't leave with him. So they waited a few weeks. And then the husband had to return. He had work, and they had kids back here in the States. And the, the wife and the, the woman who wanted to be the mom of this little boy had to wait another month until finally, after eight weeks, they were told they could have the paperwork they needed. But then they had to get a passport. And we never wait for a passport. And finally, they got that passport, and last week, they flew their boy home. Isn't that amazing? Ah. But put yourself in their place for eight weeks. Waiting and wondering, are we going to go home with our little boy or not? So sometimes the waiting is excruciating. Tragically, sometimes it's hopeless. Sometimes you're waiting for a loved one, basically, to die. Doctors have said, don't expect any change. The dementia seems to be getting worse. The health seems to be declining. The time seems to have come. And you find yourself eagerly anticipating what you used to dread. 
because you just want the waiting to stop, not just for you, but for your loved one who's obviously suffering in that time as well. Friends, there's all kinds of waiting in our lives, and we hate to wait. And we hope that when we turn to God, that God will be like us, that God will hate waiting and he will eliminate it from our lives and things will happen on our time frame, on our agenda, and everything will be fine. And when we come to God, we find out that it's not only that he doesn't stop our waiting, he seems to delight in making us wait. We're going to see that today in the life of the man we're studying, but also in the life of other people throughout Scripture. And we're going to walk away, I hope, with this big idea today. Life in the waiting room is difficult time, but it's not wasted time. At least it doesn't have to be. And if you're in a waiting room today, like I am, and like I would imagine the vast majority of us are, if you're waiting on God to do something, I hope you'll leave today realizing, okay, I'm waiting, but I don't want to waste that time. Lord, did you teach us through your word today, through the life of this man, David? Teach us how you are and what you do, and teach us to wait well. We pray that you would speak, because we're listening. In Christ's name, amen. David is an expert on the waiting room. If you were here last week, you you heard us walk through the story where, in a very dramatic way, a powerful prophet came from out of town to his home, knocked on his door, examined all of his brothers, said, these guys are not the one, and then he was chosen to be the one. And in front of his brothers, the most, pro- the most uh, powerful man apart from the king in the whole nation, the prophet Samuel, said, you are God's man, you are the next king. And you might expect the verse that follows would say something like this says something like, Samuel took David along with his brothers, they went to Jerusalem, they proclaimed David the new king, and he stepped into the role God had obviously set aside for him. That's what you and I might think. That is far, far from what happened. In fact, the very next passage after what we looked at in 1 Samuel 16 last week, where David was anointed king, the very next passage talks about King Saul, the bad guy, the guy who'd been fired a few chapters earlier, the guy who David was supposed to replace, and you're reminded, oh, he's still there. He's still in charge, and he's having problems, and he needs someone to calm him down. And someone in his entourage says, hey, why don't you contact this guy, David? He's a, he's a musician, and when you need him, he'll play for you, and that will calm you down. So he sends a message to Jesse, David's dad, and says, please send me your son, David, who is with the sheep. Wait a minute. God, are you telling us that after he got anointed king, he went back to the fields? He went back to his job? (laughs) He went back to taking care of a bunch of stinking sheep, knowing he was going to be the king of Israel? That's exactly what happened. And he comes and he plays for King Saul, and he does a good job, and and Saul appreciates him, so he kind of becomes Saul's assistant while he's splitting time. He's out in the fields, and he's in the palace. And then more happens. He's waiting. He's not yet king, but a little while later, there's a big battle. And there's this big giant who's taunting the army, the soldiers of Israel. And David's the one who goes out and takes him on and kills that giant Goliath. We'll hear about that next week. So now he becomes famous, but he's still not king. And he kind of becomes a rival of King Saul. Saul becomes jealous of David's popularity because people are singing about how powerful and what a great warrior David is. And now Saul begins to get kind of irritated with him and sees him as an enemy. Despite that, David marries Saul's daughter. He becomes best friends with Saul's son, Jonathan. We'll talk more about that. And as time goes on, Saul's bitterness toward him gets so strong that there are multiple assassination attempts as King Saul tries to eliminate this guy, David, who he now sees 
as a competitor. David eventually sees it's so dangerous, so bad, I've got to get out of town. So he takes off and lives in caves and, 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 and hangs out with the enemies of Israel. And people aren't even really clear out what side he's on yet. That's how complicated this man's life became as he was waiting for God to do what God said he was going to do. And finally, eventually, David gets word that King Saul and his sons had died in battle. So he goes back, and he is proclaimed king, but just of one of the 12 tribes of Israel. He's got one-twelfth of the role that God had told him he was going to have. And this is, we think, 15 years after he was anointed king. And then finally, seven years later, the rest of the tribes, when their guy finally dies, they turn to David and say, okay, you're our king too. What that means is, friends, from the moment we looked at last week, when in front of his brothers, he's proclaimed king to the time he becomes king, was 22 years. That's just a number unless we put it in perspective. What were you doing 22 years ago? Where were you living 22 years ago? Where were you living 22 years ago? All right? I'm looking around, and some of you weren't, okay? <laughs> let's face it. You're too young. I'll, let's put it in perspective. 1997. Ready for this? Bill Clinton was president of the United States. I won't say any more about that. We'll just let that slide. Gas was $1.22 a gallon. A new car, a spanking new car with a nice smell, you know that? $17,000, average price of a new car. Movie tickets were $4.50. All right? It's a long time ago. That's how long ago 2022 years is. I'm going to make it personal in my family, right? It's Father's Day. I want you to see some pictures of my family. On the right is my youngest daughter holding my grandson, her nephew. The difference with age between them is about 20 years. What you see on that screen was the length of time David waited for God to come through. In fact, let me make it real personal. Let me show this other family shot. This is a picture taken a little before that other one. 22 years ago, my hair was brown. <laughs> All right? So we're talking a long time, right? I love to show this picture to my daughter because it photographic proof that all the gray hair happened after she joined our family. <laughs> I, I, I allow her to take whatever conclusions she thinks are appropriate from that. So what we've got is this time frame. David lived in the waiting room of God for 20 or 22 years. But he's not alone. God's waiting room is really crowded. When you look at all the famous names we read in the rest of the Bible, this is not unusual for God to tell somebody, here's what's going to happen now. Wait for it. The, 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 the couple that founded the nation of Israel that David would become king of after that long wait was Abraham and Sarah. And when God first stepped into their lives, they were way too old to have kids. They were 75 and older, and, and, and God said, hey, you're going to be the father of a nation. Out of your body will come, you can't even count, the stars in the sky, the sand, the seashore. I will make from your family an incredibly great nation. And they had no kids. You know how much time passed between the day of the promise to the day of the birth of Isaac? It's 25 years. A little longer than David had to wait. So God's waiting room is pretty crowded. The nation of Israel was in God's waiting room for 400 years. Abraham and Sarah had the family, and it grew and it grew, and eventually, we saw last week, they got taken off to Egypt, initially as guests, but then as slaves, and life was hard. And they were suffering, and they were crying, and 400 years later, God says, okay, I'm going to put a stop to this. And he appears to Moses in the famous burning bush. And when God says to Moses, here's what I'm going to do, listen to what God says. 
God says, I've seen their misery, my people. I've heard them crying out. I'm concerned about their suffering. I have come down to rescue them. Now, that's good to hear, I'm sure, if I were the nation of Israel. But I'd also say, God, where have you been? We've been crying out for 400 years. We've been suffering for generations. We're glad you heard us. But what took you so long? How would you not reach that conclusion after 400 years? You know, there's a, maybe a more poignant, a shorter time frame to wait, but maybe a more difficult one. In John chapter 11, we see a, a famous story of, of a friend of Jesus who falls sick, a man named Lazarus. And, and they're identified, and it's a pretty powerful way. Let me read you John chapter 11. Now, a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. We've talked about these sisters a few times in recent months. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. So this comes as an SOS. This comes from people who have a special connection to Jesus, who knew how powerful he was, who had seen him heal people, maybe of the very illness that their brother had. And as they watched their brother decline and their, their pain, suffering, as they watch it happen, they say, Jesus, help. And then Jesus responds, but not the way they would have hoped. When he heard this, Jesus said, this sickness will not end in death. He's saying this to his disciples now, not to Mary and Martha. This sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory so that God's son may be glorified through it. Jesus loved Mary, Martha, and her sister Lazarus. Yet when he heard that Lazarus was sick, here it is, he stayed where he was two more days. Two days. Lord, what are you doing? This man you love, this, these women you love, a special connection, they're asking for your help. And we're sitting here? Yes, eventually he goes, and eventually he does what he knows he's going to do. And if you know the end of the story, it's pretty cool. But those ladies didn't know that. All they know is they cried out for help, and Jesus didn't show up. Friends, God's waiting room is crowded. And as if those ones weren't enough, <laughs> Jesus says to the people who follow him, what we call the church, he says, okay, I'm going to go away now, and I will come back soon. And all through the New Testament, we see, come quickly, Lord Jesus. He's coming again. He's coming soon. We've been saying that for how long? 2,000 years waiting for Jesus to come back. Friends, it's not only not uncommon, it's incredibly common for God to put his people in the waiting room. And there's a good chance many of us are there today. In fact, I would imagine if we went around the room and asked people, are you waiting on God for anything in your life? We'd get a whole lot of answers, a wide range of answers. We would hear from people who are waiting on a new job. Just last week, I prayed with a couple that's been looking and waiting and trying for months. And they asked me to pray with them one more time that as they sought some real special spiritual disciplines that God would reveal and open doors. We got people waiting for a life partner, maybe a new one, maybe a first one. You didn't choose to be alone right now. You'd rather not be alone right now. And you've talked to God about why you're alone right now. And nothing seems to be changing. You're in the waiting room. Some of us are waiting to retire. Been working hard, getting tired, looking at that 
retirement date and seeing it as a finish line, and, but it seems like it's not getting any closer. Some are waiting for healing or health. You've been suffering for a long time or someone you know and love has been. That's my waiting room. My wife hasn't had a pain-free day in 15 years. I don't know why. We're waiting. Some are waiting for a family member to realize how much they need the family and how much they need God even more. And it's agonizing to watch them, what, what they do in their lives and the choices they're making and the pain they're causing. And you're saying, if only they would come back. If only God would step in. If only he would bring someone into their life who would give them the good counsel that they would listen to. If only. And you wait. Some are waiting for a baby, yearning to be a parent. Here on Father's Day, there's men in this room who would love to be a father. And so far, it's not happening. And we're waiting. Friends, that's just a few things that we find in God's waiting room. But we do find also some challenging temptations as we wait. And this is part of the hard part of of being in that room. Because along the way, we're tempted to doubt God's goodness. Because he doesn't seem very good right now. That's what Mary and Martha wrestled with, and it's understandable. When Jesus finally did show up after their brother had died, during his delay, each one of them said to him individually the same exact phrase, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Implying a gentle rebuke, why weren't you here? We called for you and you didn't come. Why weren't you good to us? When I was in high school, I, I discovered back problems that were fairly significant and, and changed my life in some fairly drastic ways, ways that I did not welcome whatsoever. And as I was adjusting to that and, and, and handling the pain that would come with it and wondering what was going to happen next and praying about it, I was at a concert one night when after the Christian music concert, a guy got up front and began announcing different things God was doing in the room and different people God was healing in the room. I've come over the years to be a little wary of that partially because of this experience. Because at one point he called out, someone in this room is having their back healed right now. And I went, oh, well, that's interesting. And I twisted. And I said, oh, it's not me. <laughs> and and, and I, I went, well, Lord, why somebody else and not me? Why do they get the goodness? Why do they get the power? Why do they get the healing and not me? Why aren't you good to me? Sometimes we doubt God's goodness. That's the temptation of the waiting room. Sometimes we doubt God's power. Sometimes we think, maybe he's not as strong as he thought he was. There's something keeping him from doing what I yearn for him to do. I think Israel faced that during that time between their leaving Egypt and their arriving in the promised land. And life was hard in a lot of ways as they wandered and wandered. And at times they got so sick of it. And they were afraid. They were scared. Life is hard. There's enemies all around us. Maybe God can't protect us here. Maybe God can't really provide for what we need here. They said, let's go back to Egypt. Remember slavery? That was so cool. (laughs) Let's go back there again because that's better. Being a slave is better than wandering around wondering if God will do, if God is strong enough to do what he's told us he will do. Yeah, in the waiting room, we sometimes doubt God's power. And sometimes in the waiting room, we take rash steps outside of God's will. That's what Abraham and Sarah did. Remember, God said, you're going to have a kid? Okay, Lord, when? Well, he didn't say when. (laughs) Waiting. 
And I'm sure once a month, Abraham said, not yet. She said, nope, not yet. And after years of that, they said, is this going to happen? Maybe not. And Sarah says, you know, I've got a maid. Why don't you, Abraham, sleep with her? And we'll kind of move things along a little bit. Maybe that'll be the way you have a kid. And he did. And God eventually came and said, no, that's not my plan. And that rash act on the part of Abraham and Sarah, in fact, came back to bite their nation. As the children of that birth, the nation that was born from that boy, is in the headlines today as the Arab nations that are at the throat of Israel. So friends, sometimes we're tempted to to take those rash acts. And the same thing happens today as people, despite we have to wait for Jesus' return and we sometimes get tired of it and somebody gets up and says, I know when Jesus is coming back. And they announce a date. And the rest of us say, wait a minute. It says you're not supposed to know. Well, yeah, but I know. (laughs) And that person gets a following and everybody sells their homes and they gather on hilltops waiting for the trumpet to sound and go home humiliated. And people around the nation go, are these Christians nuts? Well, that's the temptation of the waiting room. But there's not only temptation in the waiting room, although it's there, we should be aware of it, be ready to resist it. There's also opportunity in the waiting room. Opportunity to to grow and to build and to live with a lack of understanding, wrestling with the, the, the clarity that we wish we had and don't. There's an opportunity to strengthen our faith in God in the waiting room. An opportunity to say, I know God is for me, even if I don't see it. Even if he's not working on my time frame. Even if he doesn't appear to be answering my prayers. I know he's for me. He's proven it in the past. His word tells me it's true, and I count on that. I know God is all-powerful, even when it doesn't look like it. I know he loves me, even when he says no or not yet. In the same way I love my kids, even though I sometimes tell them no or not yet. So I don't put God's love for me on the table. That's settled. And when we can make that declaration, even in the midst of the tensions of waiting, it's a powerful thing. And that strength in faith becomes important. It also gives us a chance to increase our intimacy with God. Especially when we refuse to play the everything's fine game. When we refuse to pretend that this is easy. I'm glad Mary and Martha, when Jesus finally showed up in their mind late, I'm glad they felt free to say to him, Lord, if you'd been here, why weren't you here? And it was good for them to be able to pour their hearts out to him in that moment. And and I'm sure they were glad for it. And friends, you and I can do the same and must do the same in the waiting room. Don't ever go to God with a mask on. Don't ever talk to God the way we sometimes sadly talk to each other. (laughs) Everything's great. Oh, yeah, my my life is is, this wonderful. And inside you're being eaten up. If we can't be honest with our God, who can we be honest with? If we can't say, God, I don't get what you're doing. I don't understand why you're not doing what I want you to do. That's a beautiful prayer. It's an honest prayer. It's a prayer that doesn't show disrespect for God. It shows a desire to understand his plan. And sometimes, friends, you'll pray that prayer for years. 
But being that open and having that freedom with your heavenly Father is powerful. It also deepens our hope. Our hope gets stretched in the waiting room. We wonder if things are hopeless. We wonder when, when will this happen? I need it to happen now, but I still hope in my God. Eventually, you, know, you have to say, I'm not even, I can't even say I hope. I don't expect necessarily him to do what I want him to do because he might say no, but I hope in his plan. I hope in his goodness. And I'm learning how to rest in it even though I've got tons of questions. Friends, when we can say that and live that, it's a powerful addition to our life with the Lord. So we're in the waiting room, and there's temptations and there's opportunities. How do we live there? Well, friends, happily, we've got some advice from the man after God's own heart who waited for over 20 years to become the king of Israel. But we don't just have this history book about him. We also have some of his poems Some of the songs he wrote for the people of God to come into God's presence with, we call them psalms. And about half of them were written by King David. I want to look at two of them with you right now because they both talk about waiting on God. The first one is advice to us when we were in the waiting room, living in the tension. Here's what he says. By the way, this is in the Psalm 27. It's a context of enemies and armies and oppression and danger. He's not writing this on an easy day. He's not writing this on a day when everything's great and he's smiling and the news is good. No, he's writing this in the midst of danger and no one really knowing what tomorrow will bring. And here's what he says. I am still, I love that word still, I am still confident of this. I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Here, now, where I live now. Here it is now. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and take heart and wait for the Lord. This is a man who knows of what he speaks, friends. This is a man who lived it for two decades, who knew what it was to be told God was going to do something and wonder when God was going to get around to it. And he says, and he tells us 3,000 years after he wrote this, wait. But he says something interesting, be strong and take heart. Wait for the Lord, wait for the Lord, sandwiched around, be strong and take heart. Because he knows it's not easy. He knows we feel weak sometimes, but he says, be strong because it takes strength to wait on God. It takes lots of strength. It takes determination. It takes a willingness to stick to it as long as it takes. So he says, take courage, take heart, be strong, and now wait. That's his advice to us in the midst of the waiting. And in Psalm 40, he gives another perspective looking back. In this one, he's at the end of the story. God has come through, and now it's past tense. But look closely at what he says. I waited, past tense, I waited patiently, that's the goal, for the Lord. That's the object. And look what he did. He turned to me. He heard my cry. He lifted me out of the slimy pit. He lifted me out of the mud and mire. He set my feet on a rock. He gave me a firm place to stand. He put a new song in my mouth. A hymn of praise to our God. That's our goal. That we get to the point where we can say, because God gave us the strength to wait and to have confidence and to to trust, that we could one day, and who knows when, one day say, yeah, I waited. And look what God did for me. Look how he came through. And by the way, the coming through doesn't necessarily mean he did what you want. 
because sometimes he doesn't. I don't do what my kids want. Why would I expect my heavenly father to do what I want? So sometimes the answer is still no, but he teaches you so much as you're waiting that you can still say, this is what he did for me. This is how good my God is. He's worth waiting for, and his plan is worth waiting for, even when it's hard to say that. And the end result, many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. My God is so good that he teaches me things that cause other people to recognize, wow, your God is good. Look what he did in you. Look what he did through you. Look what he does for you. I want that God too. Can I have your God? I don't like mine. Mine's lousy. Your God's good. I want yours. Friends, I want to leave you with a, a quote I came across this week as I, when my computer was working. <laughs> I found this quote from a pastor named Rick Azell. He says this, Those who wait on God can go about their assigned tasks confident that God will provide the meaning and conclusions to their lives and the harvest to their toil. There's this sense of confidence, and I can go about my normal life as I wait for this other thing. I'm not passive. I'm not sitting on my hands. I'm not paralyzed unless I let myself be paralyzed. I've got other things to do as I wait, and he he makes that clear. They can go about their assigned tasks. And here's how he defines waiting on God, and I love this definition. Waiting is the confident, disciplined, expectant, active, and sometimes painful clinging to God. It knows that we will reap a reward. Do you like that? I like that. Let's look at those words one at a time. Waiting is the confident. I know the one I'm trusting. Scripture says, I know in whom I believe that I'm trusting that he is able to keep that which I've committed to him against that day. I know my God. That's enough for me. So there's a certain level of confidence, even in the midst of the questions. It's disciplined. needs to be, because those temptations are there. The temptation to doubt how good God is, doubt how powerful God is. Start doing things you know he wouldn't want you to do in order to reach that goal yourself. Demand some discipline to say no to those things. It's expectant. I don't know how God's going to come through, but I expect him to. I don't know what he's going to teach me, but I know he will because he's done it before and his track record is so good that I count on that again. Even though I don't yet have what I want him to give me or do for me, I'm expecting something from him. It's active. I said a minute ago, you don't have to sit on your hands in the waiting room because even though you don't know what God was going to do over here, you know what he wants to do in all these other areas and what he expects from you. You know he wants you to be a godly man and a godly woman as you wait. You know he wants you to, to build up other people as you wait. So it's not a place of, of passive waiting in the way that we sometimes have to maybe in a hospital waiting room. There's all kinds of things to do with him and for him as we wait. Sometimes painful. Let's not pretend otherwise. When what you're waiting for something you desperately need or want, oh, the wait is hard. And it can bring you to tears. And it should bring you to your knees. And you can take that pain, as Mary and Martha did, and take it right to the God you're waiting on and say, Lord, this hurts. Why aren't you doing what I'm praying for you to do? I can't tell you how he'll answer. I really can't. 
I can tell you individual cases how he's answered me. Someday I'll tell you how he used my back, which he didn't heal that night, as a steering wheel all through my life, and how glad I am today that he didn't heal it. That's a whole different sermon. But we can recognize that pain and take it to the, the God we're waiting on and ultimately is clinging to him. Sometimes with our knuckles turning white. Sometimes with so much pressure tugging us away from him. So many, maybe even friends or family saying, why are you wasting your time with this Christianity stuff? Look, it doesn't work. If it did, your life would be different. But no, I'm going to cling to him. Because despite what it might look like, despite what anyone else might say, my God is good. My God is strong. My God loves me. And if he makes me wait, I won't love it, but I will. Friends, if we know that, and if we live that, and if we're able to be honest about it, then we can look at King David's advice in Psalm 27 and take it right to heart. He says, wait on the Lord at the beginning. Wait on the Lord at the end. And in the middle, take heart. Be strong. It's going to require that. You already know that. But the God we love and the God we wait on provides that strength. Let's pray for it right now. Lord, your, your word is so honest. Thank you for that. This man had to wait and so do we. That waiting was hard on him and hard on us. Thank you that he did it well. Thank you that he wrote words to us to help us do it well. Thank you that you preserved those words now for 3,000 years so we could read them today and we could take heart and we could be strong. Lord, we need you in the waiting room. And on our knees right now, we come to you and plead that, yes, Lord, would you do what we're waiting for? But even more so, would you teach us as we're waiting? Teach us what kind of God you are. Teach us what kind of people you want us to be. And show us how we can wait well. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.